Father in heaven, it's amazing to us that we have a document before us that is one of covenant that outlines all of your promises to us, everything that you um, have promised, have done, will do, and we can refer to it all the time. And so I pray, Father, that as we do, that it would bring faith to us and enable us uh, to live trustingly and to live in such a way that brings you glory, that we can hail you as the matchless king. This we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation in chapter 22, please. Revelation chapter 22. I didn't list a scripture in the bulletin this week because uh, I didn't know what it was when the bulletin went up on the whatever they do with it. And uh, because I had about 10 going through my head preaching topically right now, it's a little bit odd for me not to know exactly that text, but uh, I could have chosen a number and I chose this, which uh, really I won't even exposit much, but it, you'll see at the end why I chose it. I want it to be in your mind as I talk. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Hear, please, the word of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever uh, and ever. You notice that this is obviously from the end or what we may say from the beginning. From that which is eternal. From this revelation as John sees it as the return of Christ has come by this point and as he ushers in the consummation, the fullness really of his, of his kingdom. What I want to get at today is kind of sum up all that we've been doing for the last couple of months and that is to show how all of these covenants which we've been discussing uh, have, find their completion, their fulfillment, their aim in, in Jesus. I, I think of this expression in, in Ephesians and, and chapter 1 uh, where Paul writes of, of all of human history. And he puts it like this after he's talked about our redemption in Jesus. He says, God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So everything in history is moving in such a way as to be united, to be summed up, to be defined by, to be seen in our Lord Jesus. That's all of history. Now, remember... We've been talking about covenants and we've been doing it because we realize that God's relationship with us is covenantal. And we speak of covenant, we're talking about that which binds parties together. And we're we're flying really from this verse in Psalm chapter 25, verse 14, where the psalmist David writes, the friendship of the Lord, or the secret counsel, it could be translated, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Thus, by knowing his covenant, we know God. 
By knowing his covenant, we know his relationship with us. By knowing his covenant, we then could be called friends of God. He shares with us by way of covenant his intimate self, if you will. All that is true about him, all that is true about us, all that he's doing, his plans, his purposes, and all of that he shares by way of, that is, through his covenant. Now, what I want to do that today, as I mentioned, is to sum all of this up, all of these covenants up in Christ. And so, as I began to think about that, I, I, two words came to my mind. One was cursory, meaning brief. Uh, we could spend the rest of our lives talking about this. In fact, the whole of the scripture is about this very thing. So we'll hit the high points. We'll connect the dots, I trust, some. And secondly, a little bit anticlimactic, only in the sense that we already talked about much of this. I've, I've tried at times to pull these covenants all the way through Christ to Christ. So when we talked about the covenant with Adam at creation, we, we talked about how it is that it's fulfilled in Jesus. We talked about the covenant of Noah. We, we spoke some about Christ. We talked about the covenant with Abraham. We, we brought it to Christ. We talked about the covenant with Moses. We brought it to Christ. We talked about the covenant with David. We brought it to Christ. So a little bit, in some sense, anticlimactic. But I think it's helpful, at least it's good for me, helpful for us to see this kind of in one sitting, all one fell swoop, just poof, so I'm going to blitz you. What all that means. But it really should thrill our souls. Often, though, things like this doesn't don't thrill our soul. Sometimes we just sort of ho-hum them. And I think often of this story, I heard it first, I think, at my age it's hard to remember where you heard all these from. Uh, but I, I think I heard it first from a guy named D.A. Carson, who's a great New Testament uh, theologian. He was talking about, obviously, scripture. And, uh, and he, he mentioned a, a story. I trust it's true. He said it was true. I trust him. Even if it's not true, it makes a great point. Uh, but he said that there was an occasion where two men were walking through the Louvre, walking through this great art museum, this great museum in, in Paris. And as they were walking through it, they were noticing the art, and they were critiquing the arts and the artists. The curator of the museum happens upon them and began to listen to their critique of the arts, and so he followed them around. When he got to the end of the museum, he stopped them, introduced himself, and made this comment. He said, at this museum, it is not the art that's being tested. By that he meant, this is great art. If you don't like it, what's that say about you? <laughs> I think that every time I open the scripture. This is the word of God, and I don't like it. If it doesn't thrill my soul, what does it say about me? Because when we come to the scripture, it isn't the scripture that's being tested. So we take this up, and this should thrill our souls. I, I may not share it well. That may not thrill you how I say it, but, but, but the concept, the idea of it should thrill me, should thrill you. It should thrill our very souls. Now, we began some weeks, a few months ago, I suppose, talking about the covenant at creation, the covenant with Adam. You might remember what God put together. Remember, covenant binds parties together. It identifies the parties. Uh, it, it lays out the stipulations, that is, the responsibilities of one to the other. Uh, vows are made and guarantees are given. Guarantees are given in the context of, of signs, things that point to the agreement that you've made. Documents often, things that, that are written, that are held in, in, in trust so that they can be referred to, so that everyone can understand the responsibilities of each party. Uh, and often in covenants, 
there's an oath curse, remember, that is taken. And often then an animal is slain and the parties of the covenant walk between the animals saying, in essence, if I break this covenant, be it done unto me what has been done unto these animals, that is, that I'd be killed. And so we see those kinds of flashes in each of these covenants that we look at. But in this covenant of creation, covenant with Adam, you remember, God makes Adam and Eve in his image there to reflect him. And they're to reflect him in the sense that he's God. So they're to honor him as God. Their whole life is to be that of worship. And so they're to look to God to define them. They ask God, who are we? They're to live by his definition of who they are. They look to God to direct them. And, and they're defined, really, their delight in God, their joy in him. And so God lays all of this out, and they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to subdue the earth. That's the stipulations of what it means to be human, uh, to, to, to marry and family and, and all of that, and to, to rule, if you will, over the earth. And so that's what they're to do, all under God's sovereign direction, all under his lordship. And remember... God gives to them uh, a stipulation that they're not to eat of one particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this lays out for us one of two categories of covenants that God has made. One is this covenant of works, where our relationship with him is built on merit, and the other covenant of grace, where our relationship with him is built on his merit, on his graciousness to us. But as Adam is, is in the garden, he's given this stipulation that he is to, to, to obey God, that is not to eat from this one particular tree. That's the key stipulation. There are others, but that's the key stipulation. And you remember that the reward for obedience is the tree of life that's in the garden. We learned that when Adam fails, when he sins, when he rebels against God, and God says we need to get him out of here, he doesn't get to eat from the tree of life. So the curse was death, separation from God, expulsion from the very presence of God. And, and so there, you remember, uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, there was this, 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 these angels that stood, these cherubim that stood at the, at, at the entrance, if you will, to the Garden of Eden. And, and there was this fiery sword that was there as well, all to keep them from entering into the garden and getting to the tree of life. God says, I can't let you eat of that now under this curse for fear that you live forever in this cursed way because God had a plan. Remember, he said he was going to bring one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, Jesus comes to fulfill that covenant of works. He is, as the Apostle Paul expresses him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is the last Adam. There was the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam. You remember, we said one of the key features of understanding covenant is to realize that when a covenant is made, it's made not only with those two particular parties, but with everyone who, who is in that particular one. So that when God made covenant with Adam, he was making covenant with everyone in Adam. Everyone Adam represented so that the Bible can say, when Adam sinned, all sinned. He was our representative head. He was, in sort of theological language, he was our covenant head. He stood for us. He represented us. And so when he sinned, we all sinned. Now you may say, that doesn't sound fair. I didn't get a chance at this. 
But do you really, A, think you would do any better? And B, if God has chosen this one to be our representative, who could choose a better representative? Now, we vote and have representatives in Congress and so forth all the time. Sometimes they represent us well. Sometimes they don't represent us well. In fact, sometimes we actually have to admit, I voted for the wrong one. I shouldn't have voted for that one. Now that I see how they're going to vote and all of that. But God, you see, he's the one who made Adam to be our representative. So if we're going to trust anyone about choosing a representative for us, why wouldn't it be God's choice? And Adam was our representative head. Now the good news for us is there's another head of covenant as well. The same Jesus whom we trust. And so you see, it's covenantal. That's how we understand God. He's made this one covenant of works. Adam failed. He brings Jesus along to be the one who will fulfill this covenant of works. In fact, Paul lays this out in Romans and chapter 5. It's a bit of a complicated passage, and I don't have time to develop it all, but I, I think you'll get the gist of it. If we just read it, and you, you, get, a, you get a sense of it. It's a comparison, really contrast in many ways, between Adam, the first Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the last Adam. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Now, before I read this, just bear in mind, there's a couple of expressions. He uses the word all and he uses the word many. Don't get confused by those. Uh, Their meaning is laid out by context and I think it'll be clear. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, who was that one man through whom sin came? Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we know that sinning is continuing to happen because death continues to happen. Death is the sign that there is sin. As long as death continues, the last enemy, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, as long as death continues, then we know that there is sin. For for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, the law of Moses, but sin is not counted before there's no law. It's counted, it's just not understood well in that sense. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now here's the point, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a precursor. Adam was one like one who is to come. Now, who do you think that one who is to come is? Verse 15, this comparison contrast really between Adam and Jesus. Take note because this is everything. If this isn't true, we're sunk. If this isn't true, then we have to, in and of ourselves, undo what Adam did. Or we're lost, condemned. So notice, verse 15. But the free gift, understand that, through Jesus. The free gift is not like the trespass that Adam committed. For if many died through the one man's trespass, that is through Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So you see the contrast. Trespass, boom, uh, death. 
through Jesus, this free gift of God's grace. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. So the one man's sin had a particular result. And the free gift that comes from Jesus has a particular result. And the result, he says in verse uh, 16, of the free gift isn't like that one man's sin. And that's a good thing. If it was like it, we'd be sunk. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. The result of Adam's sin brought condemnation to Adam and everyone else from him. We could even, if we want to be generous, say everyone else from him who ever sinned. That still includes us, doesn't it? So condemnation for him and everybody else. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification means righteousness. Justification means a declaration by God to say, you're forgiven, I accept you, you're living just as if you had never sinned. Now that, that's exactly what we need. If trespasses bring condemnation, then how can we be free of our condemnation? And God says, well, there's another to represent you, and he will bring righteousness. He will bring justification. If, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, so death comes through Adam and it reigns over the whole human race, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, now who are those who receive the abundance of grace? Those who believe in Jesus, right? So that's who he's talking about now. Um, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man's through that uh, one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So death through Adam, but life to those who believe in Jesus. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words... The trespass, the sin of Adam led to all condemnation. But Jesus undid that, for those who believe in him, by obeying. You see what he's saying? He's saying there's this one who represented us who sinned. There's this one who represented us who obeyed. Thus there's life in him. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you come upon an incident in the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where each one says, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In fact, in Mark's brief account, in Mark chapter 1, Mark puts it like this. He says, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, why do you think those gospel writers included that incident in the life of Jesus? Now, often we read those passages with this question in mind. We read those passages with the question, how can I overcome temptation? And we follow the model of Jesus. That's fine. That'll work. It's really good. Jesus did a great job. Should be modeled. Should be followed. Now, I don't think, however, that's the primary reason, or maybe it really wasn't even in their minds at all, for those gospel writers to put that event in their gospel accounts. Now, why do I say that? Because, you see, they wanted us to know who Jesus was, and they wanted to know why Jesus had come. Jesus had come to fulfill that which Adam had blown. 
And so they wanted to make sure we knew that Jesus went through a temptation as well, just as Adam did. Except, you see, Jesus' temptation was much more severe. You know, Adam had this wonderful garden and all these trees and all this food and everything was cool and, and wonderful for him. But Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. Do you realize that if most people spend 40 days alone in the woods, they would go mad with no food? Well, that's the condition of Jesus, as weak as any human being could ever be. And then Satan comes upon him. And you see, the, the temptation of Jesus was essentially the same as the temptation of Adam. Because you see, the temptation that, the, that Satan brought to Eve and then ultimately to Adam as he was overseeing all of this was, has God really said that is, he was casting aspersions, if you will, on God's word, the truthfulness of God's word. How does Jesus answer Satan every time he comes to him? He says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand, Satan. It's written. In other words, Jesus grabs hold of the word of God and he clings to it. He says, no, this is true. You're wrong. And so you see, in the midst of that moment, that, if we could put it like this, was Jesus' Garden of Eden moment. Or... We could say that he, at that point in time, obeyed where Satan had sinned. Now, for whom did Jesus obey? This is the point. For those who were in him. For those who would trust in him. And so you see, in obeying, it's as if we obeyed with him. Jesus fulfilled this covenant of works. That's crucial for us. That way, being in Jesus, God can look to us and say, you're righteous. And we know we're not. And if you don't believe, if you believe you're inherently righteous, then just ask somebody sitting close to you. All right? And especially if they're related to you, they'll probably have a nice list of unrighteousness. But he declares us righteous. Why? Because he sees us in Christ Jesus undid it, if you will. He, he merited our salvation. See, we're saved by grace through faith. However, we're really saved by works as well. Not by ours, but by his. And then you see, Jesus continued to obey the Father. Because even in the context of the covenant with Moses, there are stipulations, there's laws, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus obeyed all of that too because he was born under the law. You see, the truth of the Ten Commandments has always been. God could have given the Ten Commandments to Adam. And in one sense, he did. He gave him the first two at least in the Garden of Eden in the stipulation. You will have no other gods before me. And you'll worship me as I am. That is, make no image of me. You'll worship me as I, as I truly am. And then surely he had to use God's name in a way that was reverent. And, and surely he would obey the Sabbath. I mean, that was the, the whole point of these creation days as they're laid out in, in, in Genesis 1. And so surely he would know that. And he was to be faithful to his wife. He wasn't to murder and so forth and so on. Didn't need to steal. But so all of that, you see. 
He was not covered. He was to be content with, with everything that God had given him. Now, God didn't lay it out quite like that to him. But, 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 but the Ten Commandments are true. They're, they're, a, they're a perfect expression of the will of God. And so Jesus obeys all of those. He says, I've come to do the will of my Father. I don't do anything that I haven't heard him say. I don't do anything that I haven't seen him do. Everything about Jesus was, was perfect. And you see, every time Jesus obeyed, he obeyed for us. So we realize that every time you and I have sinned. There's been a place at which Jesus has obeyed. And you see, his obedience as our covenant head covers over, cancels out, however you want to put it, in that sense, our disobedience. Jesus fulfilled this covenant of works. That's true. That is indeed life for us. He is our Second Adam, if you will. The covenant with Abraham. You remember God makes a covenant with Abraham and he promises him descendants because he's promised him to be a great nation. So he promises him descendants. He promises him land as well. And you remember that God, in a perhaps one of the most striking passages in all of the scripture in Genesis 15, uh, makes this covenant with Abraham in such a way that God takes all of the responsibility upon himself for its fulfillment. It's a covenant of grace. You remember the, the, the animals are, are, are laid out. God says to, to Abraham to go and cut up this animal and lay it out. And so Abraham does that. And you remember that Abraham essentially sleeps. It's a terror kind of sleep. It's kind of a sleep awake. He knows something incredible is happening. In a sense, terrifying is happening. He's in the very presence of God. But then God, in the form of this smoking fire pot and so forth, goes through the pieces. In essence, God is saying that I will fulfill. I'm the guarantee of this covenant. In fact, I guarantee that this covenant will be fulfilled, that my promises to you will be fulfilled, that you'll be a great nation. And not only that, but you remember that promise that said, from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God says, that's going to happen. I guarantee it. And, 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 and this is even almost impossible to be able to say, but God says, I guarantee it with my own life. I swear by my own life. If it requires my death, God says, then so be it. But I will fulfill this covenant. And we know that to fulfill it required the very death of his son. So God takes the oath curse upon himself to guarantee it. And so we know that it indeed will be fulfilled. And so as, as Jesus comes, he is the very one who fulfills this covenant with Abraham. He, he's the very son of Abraham, if you will. You remember the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And so he's the very one who comes, this very one, this seed, this one from the, fam- from, the, from, the, from the family of Abraham, if you will, who will bless all the nations of the earth. Now you remember that God promised to Abraham many descendants, countless descendants. He took Abraham outside on an evening and he said, look up to the sky, count the stars. And in a sense, in, in the literal translation is count the uncountable. He says, that's how many of your descendants will be. Now, we know that Abraham, eventually, by way of his family and all of that, had, had 
large, um, a large number of descendants, uncountable descendants, even when they were enslaved in Egypt. But you realize that there is a spiritual offspring of Abraham as well. And that really is the true offspring of, of Abraham. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans in chapter 2, verse 28, he puts it like this. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, he's already laying out, as was really true in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament as well, that isn't a matter of externals, but it's a matter of what's internal. A real Jew, a real child of Abraham, if you will, is one who is circumcised in the heart, who believes, who trusts. Remember on one occasion Jesus was talking to religious leaders and they were claiming to be children of Abraham and they were claiming to be children of God. And Jesus said, no, you're not. If you're a child of Abraham, you'd believe in me. You're really a child of your father, the devil. Well, that freaked them out, as you might expect. But, but, but that was the point. He said, no, no, no. It isn't a matter of ethnicity at this point. It's a matter of trust. Do you trust in God? Because you see, always this plan, this promise to Abraham was bigger than just Abraham and his descendants ethnically. It was, it was this promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that there would be people from every nation of the world who would be followers of, of Jesus, who would know God through him in the context of this new covenant. So, so Paul's making this case in, in Romans that, that it's all who come by faith. It isn't a matter of ethnicity. The ethnicity was important in the old covenant because a nation needed needed to be, to be there, a people needed to be there out of which the Messiah would come. But once the Messiah had come, then that was gone. Verse chapter uh, 4 in Romans, in verse, uh, verse 11, speaking of Abraham, Paul writes, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he, be, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And then verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's or all his offspring, not only to uh, the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. You see, Abraham's the father of all who come by faith. These descendants, these countless numbers of descendants, Old Testament, New Testament, are all those who believe, all those who have faith. Abraham believed in the promises of God of the one who is to come, and even then, those of us now who believe in Jesus. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9 to speak the same thing. He says this. He says, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's a rather odd statement, isn't it? He's making a point. And he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not of the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, it's those who trust, who believe, those very ones 
Paul makes the same points in Galatians in chapter 3, and we could play this out through really all of the New Testament, but it's important, I think, for us to, to get it, for us to see, for us to realize this work of Christ, what he has indeed done. For instance, in verse 7 of Galatians 3, Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so do you see the tie that Jesus has come, you see, to make one people of God. Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, pre-cross believers, post-cross believers, and Jesus, all one, all united together. In Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle says that, that it is through uh, the cross that Christ has made peace, not only peace with God, but peace among those who are his followers, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Jew, Gentile, uh, all together. Galatians chapter 3, and verse 28, he writes, therefore there is Neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male or female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ's, then you are uh, Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the covenant. In fact, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 2. And these words should ring familiar to us. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's the very thing that God said to the enslaved uh, uh, children of Abraham while they were in Egypt. He says, you're to, meet, you're, you're to be uh, my treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he says, you, you are my people. And he's speaking to those who are followers of Jesus. People for my own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And thus we see that Jesus has done that. Revelation, finally, this will be my last piece on this. Revelation in chapter 5, in this great song that's being sung in glory, they sing of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, Jesus fulfilled all of that. All the promises to Abraham, he fulfilled. In fact, he's the very one who took the curse. Because you see, not only is it necessary for us to have someone who obey for us, but now we need someone to deal with the penalty for our sin. That was the curse of it. And so Jesus came to do just that. The covenant with Moses had these stipulations. You must obey. But also in the midst of those stipulations, it, has, and it had a picture, a shadowy picture of the way of redemption. And that is by way of prophets who would come and speak about the curse and say you must repent about priests who would come and stand in the very presence of God on behalf of the people and sacrifices that would be made. Now the most significant sacrifice of all the sacrifices that were made by the priests was the one made by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest, you remember, would offer sacrifices for himself. And then he would take two goats and the one goat he would kill, and he would take the blood of that goat on behalf of the people through a curtain. 
into the Holy of Holies. Now the curtain was scarlet that is red. And embroidered into it was a, was a sword and cherubim. Actually not a sword, just the cherubim. And then as he would go into the Holy of Holies, there would be a box, the Ark of the Covenant. And that box, the Ark of the Covenant, would contain, as we mentioned last Sunday, the documents of the covenant. It would contain the tablets of the covenant, had a jar of manna in it, and Aaron's rod, just to remind the people of where they'd come from, that God is the deliverer and his covenant with them. And over top of this box was a gold seat called the mercy seat. And on each end were these two cherubim guarding, if you will, the very entrance into the mercy of God. And this, this, this ark was the very place, the scripture said, where God dwelt. In fact, many times in, in the Old Testament, it was said that God dwelt between the cherubim, meaning that that's where he was. That was his throne. This was the very presence of God with his people. And so how is it that this sin is going to be dealt with? And so the, 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 the high priest, and only the high priest, only once a year, would go in by himself to the Holy of Holies through the curtain, and, and he would sprinkle blood past the cherubim onto the mercy seat and that would be an atoning sacrifice saying God saying I won't kill you I won't punish you for your sin but I will in fact take the life of another and thus at least for another year your sins are atoned for and then you remember he would go out and grab the other goat and he would lean against it and he would confess the sins of the people against it against God and he would lean on the goat as if this goat now would take the burden, if you will, of their sin. And then he would set that goat free. And the goat would go into the wilderness. And it was as if the people could then see, yes, they're gone, my sins, as far as the east is from the west. Now, it's our Lord Jesus who's that very high priest who stands in our place. It's our Lord Jesus who's that very sacrifice for us. You see, with that old covenant, one of the difficulties with, the, uh, the, with its administration was that these priests were just like everybody else. I mean, I bet you, would get, you could get to know the high priest a little bit. And you might get to know him well enough to think, he's just like me. I saw him go through that stop sign last week, Right? And uh, I, I know, I, I saw him yell at his kids. And so we think, he's just like I am. And so why does he get to represent me? And if he was honest, he would say, yeah, I don't know either. I just happen to be born into this family of Levi. So here I am, and I just happen to be of this particular family. So I'm the high priest. And so here I am. But really, I am no different than you. And to prove that, in order for me to make sacrifices for you, I have to make sacrifices for me. So, so it's just this long process. And secondly, it was just this animal. And you have to ask the question, how can a, how can a goat, well, maybe a goat could represent me. How, how can a goat, an animal, represent me? It didn't do anything wrong, did it? Just a goat, just an animal, just a symbol of something. This, this, this doesn't really feel right. And then, and then you have to do it every year. Every year I have to think about this again. My sins need to be atoned for. My sins need to be atoned for. And so every year it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. In fact, you go into the Mercy Street, you can, you can see last year's blood on there probably. I don't, I don't know. So there, there it is. And, and then Jesus comes, you see. And he stands in the very, oh, the real Holy of Holies on our behalf, and there is, in fact, our Lord Jesus. For instance, in Hebrews, in chapter 9, in verse 11, we read this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, and thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead, from dead works? Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands with your copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That is amazing. That he did, he fulfilled that entire covenant all the way from Abraham all the way through Moses and we know he's the very king of kings and the lord of lords he's the one who has the right to do this he's the one who's conquered sin and death he's the one who's who's crushed really the head of the serpents because he is the lord that 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 profession of faith that we read this morning from Philippians chapter 2 that he though being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant and humbling himself being obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross And you see, because of all of that, he was highly exalted. He was highly exalted by God, and he was given a name that's above every name. And in essence, he was given the name God. The name Lord. He's the king of any who would be king. He's the Lord of any who would think himself to be Lord. He is the one who is God with us. Now, with all of this, the... the, the, uh, um, uh, Old Testament prophets referred to this as the new covenant. We read of that in one of our readings this morning. Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant. Do you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was with his disciples in that Passover meal? He took bread, broke it, said, this is my body which is given to you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It should have been at that moment in time, and we'll do this next week when we talk about the signs of the covenant, but next week, uh, but it should have been at that moment in time, bells and whistles should have been going off in the, in the brains, if they were able at that moment, the brains of the disciples to think, new covenant, whoa, that's Jeremiah. That, that, that means something's about to happen, something cataclysmic is going to happen, the, the whole new thing, this is, this is it. And what this means is, that God will write his law upon our hearts. What this means is that he will be our God and we will be his people. What this means is that we will know him. What this means is that he will forgive our sins and iniquities and remember them no more. No more priests every year, no more thinking about this, no more priests every year having to make atonement because Jesus is, is doing this all. Oh, verse 11 of Hebrews in chapter 10, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a, foot, a footstool for his feet. That's what's happening right now. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit often also bears witness to us, saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord's, I'll put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. I'll remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's finished. But I'm not. One more point. Let me me just sort of sum it up like this. Do you remember? I mentioned this earlier today, and you'll know this just from Bible reading and so forth. That when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden, and the way back into the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life, was guarded by a flaming sword and the cherubim. When God gave a picture of how it was that we would get back to him, he set up a tabernacle. There was a veil outside the tabernacle, as I mentioned earlier, that was scarlet, that was red. Embroidered into it were cherubim. On the inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim guarding, if you will, to the seat of God, the throne of God, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat. And in a sense, God said every year through the priest, to get to me, to get back in, you've got to come through this guarded way to my mercy. And then you're in. Do you remember what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified? That red veil embroidered within the cherubim, guarding the way into the Holy of Holies, was ripped and it was ripped from top to bottom. good thing about that, I suppose, is that no human being can take credit for it because they could only rip it from bottom to top. But it was ripped from top to bottom. And, and God said, come in now by way of blood. Why could he say that? Because something was happening, as I read a, a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 9, something was happening in the unseen world. Something was happening in glory. Something was happening that only that box and that veil pictured. There was a reality to that. We call those shadows. We, we call these things in the old covenant shadows of the new shadows. And anytime there's a shadow, there must be a reality, right? If, if the sun's here and there's a shadow here, you know that there's something between the sun and the shadow. Well, there was a shadow, so there was something between. And that something between was the reality of in the very presence of God, the Holy One, the Holy of Holies. And that's where Jesus went. And so we couldn't see that. He said, okay, I'm going to open up this. And so you see what in essence happened. He says, you want to get back to life. You want to, you want to make it back to the beginning. You want to make it back to get what Adam lost. You see, our existence in glory is way better than what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Because they hadn't yet eaten from the tree of life. They lost the reward Jesus gained it for us. That's why I read from Revelation 22 to begin all of this. Because that's where we end up. After the work of Christ in the new covenant, that flaming sword, that red curtain, those cherubim guarding the very mercy of God now opened up. And there's a sense in which the reality is that a day will come when we'll enter into that glorious place because of Christ, not on the basis of our own merit, but on the basis of his, not on the basis of anything that's true of us, but because God has committed himself to fulfill this for all in Christ. And there we are in him, and we find our way 
to the tree of life, fully satisfied in the presence of God, his people knowing him. Let's pray. Father, that's amazing. And so we pray first simply to say thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Enable us to get our minds, our hearts, our very lives around it. May on one occasion, on some occasions, we simply tremble before it. And on others, we simply rejoice. So thank you. May all that we do in this life be with the understanding of that which is true and is to come. So Jesus, as you rule and reign, we know that you rule and reign in such a way that we may have life and have it to the full. So let us embrace the life that you give to us and give you thanks for it and to walk in it. May we not complain, but may we turn to you and trust. For you, Lord Jesus, are our living guarantee that all of this is true. You live to make certain that our salvation is true and sure. You live to make certain that we have life from this day of belief to all of eternity. Father, we're grateful for your kindness to us. We thank you for the birth of Audrey Foster yesterday to Lindsay and Jeff. So, Father, we're grateful. We pray for that family that you would be with them. Bless them in the richest, deepest sense of that word that they might know your favor in the birth of that little girl. And Father, we pray for our dear little Paxton too, that you would be with her, that you would continue to heal her, Father, strengthen her body, give her great strength of mind and spirit, that you would so be with her, that she would trust in you, be with her mom and dad, enable them to trust you as well. Father, for all of us, Uh, In these days, that you would be with us, that we really would know the end from the beginning. We really would know that which is true and base our entire life upon it. That any time Satan comes to us with anything contrary, we can say, oh, it is written, and it's more than that. Jesus lives as our guarantee, and we'll trust in him. This, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.